This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Amnesty International says... Heavy deployment of armed security personnel and use of force against peaceful protesters in Angola is yet another indication that authorities are not prepared to tolerate dissent. An Angolan court sentences two former prime ministers to long jail terms. In economics, British company Tulo Oil may put Kenya's oil wealth dreams in jeopardy after it downgraded its production outlook. And lastly, in sport, the Athletics Federation of Nigeria inaugurates a six-man committee to investigate the activities of the board. Right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here's Joelani Tulo with your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Protesters have marched through the Algerian capital, Algiers, to demand Thursday's presidential election be cancelled. The protesters were chanting that they would not vote in a poll they regard as a charade. Riot police stood blocking roads and a helicopter circled overhead. The military has cast the election as the only way to end the stalemate on the streets, while protesters rejected it as a sham designed to maintain the status quo. No foreign observers are in Algeria to monitor the vote. All five of the state approved candidates running for office are former senior officials linked to the former president Abdelaziz Bouteflika, whom the army forced aside in April in response to the protests. Myanmar's leader Aung San Suu Kyi has been defending her country against allegations of genocide at the UN International Court of Justice. The Nobel Peace Prize laureate is responding to widespread claims that Myanmar committed atrocities against the Muslim Rohingya community. In her opening remarks, she called the case against Myanmar incomplete and incorrect. She says troubles in Rakhine, where many Rohingya lived, go back centuries. There be genocidal intent on the part of the state that actively investigates, prosecutes, and punishes soldiers and officers who are accused of wrongdoing. Although the focus here is on members of the military, I can assure you that appropriate action will also be taken against civilian offenders in line with due process. There will be no tolerance of human rights violations in the Rakhine or elsewhere in Myanmar. Immigration authorities in Liberia have announced they are expecting 35 Liberian women who were deported from the U.S. to arrive in the country late in the day. A spokesperson for the Immigration Service says the woman who had been convicted for various crimes had completed their jail terms in the U.S. Their crimes included aggravated assault, child cruelty, fraud, drunk driving, resistance to police actions and weapon-related offences. Every year, Liberia receives groups of deportees from the U.S., but 
this is thought to be the first time those being sent to the country are all women. Egypt, Eritrea and Cameroon are among the worst nations in the world for jailing journalists. This is according to the Press Freedom Group, the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ. It has listed 26 journalists jailed in Egypt, most of whom, it says, are grouped in mass trials and charged with both terror offences and false news. Eritrea topped the list of most journalists jailed in sub-Saharan countries with 16. Cameroon also comes near the top of the list with seven detained journalists. And finally, global environmental activist Greta Thunberg has lambasted world leaders for manipulating carbon reduction projects while committed to climate change. She delivered the scathing remarks at the Climate Emergency Lecture at the UN Climate Change Conference COP25 in Madrid, Spain. Thunberg says since the 2015 Paris Agreement, the West has invested more than 1.9 trillion US dollars in fossil fuels. The 16-year-old says these countries are making commitments that are empty that will have little impact on the fight against climate change. Because most of these pledges do not include aviation, shipping and imported and exported goods and consumption. They do, however, include the possibility of countries to offset their emissions elsewhere. These pledges don't include the immediate yearly reduction rates needed for wealthy countries, which is necessary to stay within the remaining tiny budget. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Amnesty International says the heavy deployment of armed security personnel and the subsequent excessive use of force against peaceful protesters in Angola is yet another indication that authorities are not prepared to tolerate dissent. Protesters gathered in the city of Cabinda yesterday to march for a referendum for autonomy from Angola as they believe that they are being marginalized. Authorities responded by deploying security forces in high numbers to block the march, uh, arresting dozens of protesters and their leaders in the process. Amnesty International says the use of unlawful and intimidating tactics to suppress a peaceful protest totally disregards the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. More from David Matine. The Amnesty International's Southern Africa researcher. It was an unlawful show of force, the repression of free freedom of expression and freedom of assembly because these were unarmed, peaceful protesters. In fact, they had not even protested because their intentions to protect, which was known by the government, was uh, curtailed even before it took place. Some of these protesters were arrested from their own homes from the streets, and some of them are from hospitals and taken to prison where there are allegations of ill treatment. Now, this was illegal, it was violent, it was unconstitutional, and we are calling for their immediate and unconditional release. And are the protesters, uh, David's demands for a referendum, valid in your view? Well, you know, it's not up to us to decide whether it's valid. They have different opinions. And within democracies, uh, different opinions you know, are what make you know, democracy what they are. So we urge the Angolan government to respect the dissenting views and allow those who want to express them to do so freely, without fear, without intimidation, without violating their rights. Now, Kabinda is a very important province in Angola. 
almost 90% of Angola's oil comes from Cabinda. And we know that almost 90% of Angola's economy depends on oil exports. So it's a very important uh, province, and we, we can understand uh, the government's uh, nervousness on political unrest in the area. But that's not an excuse to violently repress people who want to freely express their opinion and dissatisfaction with how the government is run. Now, several people were arrested, uh, David, and uh, as Amnesty International, what is your appeal at this time to authorities? Well, what we want to see in Angola is respect for human rights, respect for freedom of expression, all the basic freedoms, you know, freedom of assembly, and all the freedoms actually sanctioned by the Angolan constitution and the Angolan legislation and the international human rights law to which Angola is signatory. They should respect all of that, and they should show that respect by immediately releasing uh, these young people who have been unlawfully and violently taken to prison. And a prominent human rights lawyer, Arabula Temple, has had um, his house surrounded by armed police officers in the lead-up to the march. What have you made um, of these actions, and what does this mean for safety? Well, we are very concerned with the safety of Mr. Aram Temple. He is a very prominent you know, human rights lawyer in a country where human rights have been violated regularly, especially in this province, a province that is heavily militarized, and any action that appears to be politically motivated, uh, the, the government you know, pounces on it with so much violence. And uh, we are concerned with his uh, safety because he's housed been surrounded by police officers armed. We don't know what their intentions, but you know they seem to be intimidating him. So we want all these intimidations to stop and let people to freely feel express themselves and practice their profession, even as human rights lawyers, freely without fear. And that was David Matsine, Amnesty International's Southern Africa researcher, on the line talking to Zikona Miso. An Algerian court has sentenced two former prime ministers to long jail terms amid a huge corruption investigation. Ahmed Oyahia has sent, has been, was sentenced to 15 years in prison and Abdel Malek Salel to 12 years. The two were accused of abusing authority in a car manufacturing embezzlement scandal and were the allies of longtime President Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who resigned amid mass protests in April. Protesters have continued to call for sweeping reforms, accusing leaders of the governing party of widespread corruption and repression ahead of the presidential elections to be held tomorrow. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Nolaf Aboud, executive director of the Nordic Center for Conflict Transformation. He says the sentences handed to the two prime ministers came as a surprise. It's uh, very surprising the way things have uh, developed in uh, Algeria. Uh, One thing is that this is the first time since the independence of Algeria that there is a prosecution of former ministers by the judiciary in Algeria. This is very, very important. Also, this this comes in time where there are only a few days. The election is going to start tomorrow on the 12th from one of the most major elections uh, in the country. And after more than 40 weeks of protest of the Algerian people, by which I would like to mention, it's one of the most peaceful protests. And we thank the protesters in Algeria for being so peaceful, so resilient, 
and uh, demonstrated a lot of uh, civility in doing so. So, yes, it's very much surprising. And also that demonstrates that uh, the claims of Algerian people for a meaningful transition in the country by going out in the street, these women and men and gathered together, has somehow impacted and uh, the, the decision process within the deep state or the system in Algeria that sure. has been there for a long time. Now, defense lawyers, uh, we know that they boycotted the trial, alleging that the proceedings were politicized and aimed at settling scores. Did the two show any remorse during the court proceedings? One of the major things that we need to understand here is that the proceedings and the sentences came within a pre-established system that Algerian people are asking for uh, the change of it, that they want to see a democratic process. They did not really focus on the punishment. Uh, they did not uh, ask that they need to punish those corrupted people. The, what they asked for is that they want the system and the regime to change, uh, like a South African model of, uh, of, uh, of transition. Something, so. this is an opportunity for, for the country to come together and negotiate a peaceful transition. This is, it is the system that actually and allegedly nominated those judges who pronounced those sentences uh, is the one who allowed those former prime ministers to be in power for so long. Don't forget, the first sentence against uh, Uyahia is, is the, the 15 years, is Uyahia was prime minister for four times in the country. And the second former prime minister, Salah, he, was, he served two terms as a prime minister. So he has been in power for so long. And it's the same system and judges that allow these people to use or misuse, allegedly misuse the, the, the public funds. It is the same system that is parading uh, these ministers as criminals now. In, in summary, what I can say basically is that this is a selected trial and selected enforcement, and so which raises a lot of questions about the process in itself. Now, the verdict comes before a presidential election, the first since Botteflika was forced out of office. It has been described as the vote that only a few want. Just paint a picture for us in terms of the significance of these polls and whether a free and fair vote is possible under the current circumstances. Exactly. This is a very, very good question. It's to what extent... Elections will be free and fair in circumstances like this. The Algerian people did not want to have elections. They asked for meaningful transition. They were willing to sit down and negotiate a meaningful transition. Election comes later on, but it is an enforced, also an enforced uh, election, and which processes would not be accepted by Algerian people. And I, I do not believe that elections will resolve anything in Algeria. The protesters want a whole new political system instead. Do you think this is possible? Because what is happening in Algeria is similar to what is happening in Sudan, where some associates of former president are part of the transitional system. Do you think the new political system is possible in Algeria? I don't think so. You know, the political system in Algeria is linked to a system of the deep state that hasn't changed so far. And what I mean by deep state or the state within the state, like a lot of people talk about when they speak about Algeria, is that hidden networks of, pol- of politicians, people at the leadership of the military and businessmen 
who are functioning outside the framework of the political leadership that has been elected in the country. And uh, they're doing things, you know, for their own benefits rather than the benefits of the Algerian people. Uh, I believe that uh, the system is still there. Uh, some few people have changed and a few people will be put in jail, uh, forcibly by, by uh, uh, a certain military leadership. But the system is still there and still functioning and still instructing how the country is going. Uh, changing the, the facade, the political facade uh, in the country is not going to change anything. It will continue with the same thing. Algerian people know about this. And that is why they're asking for the change of the, of the system, of the deep state in itself, uh, and open up to democratic processes and transparent democratic process in the country. Now, is there any word yet um, in terms of whether the two former prime ministers will appeal their convictions? You know, everything now is not very clear. Uh, they claim that they are innocent. The process in itself was, was not transparent, uh, so we don't know from the inside what's going on. I don't think that they would even trust the appeal process in itself, because it's the same machinery that will look at the case again. And that was uh, Nofal Aboud, Executive Director of the Nordic Center for Conflict Transformation on the Line from Rabat in Morocco, talking to Kumbelo Munjalele. The Nobel Peace Prize laureate Aung San Suu Kyi has defended Myanmar's government against accusations of genocide at the International Court of Justice, calling the allegations uh, factually misleading. Addressing a bench of 17 judges from around the world, uh, the 74-year-old leader dismissed reports of state violence against Rohingya Muslims and blamed the conflict on an uprising by separatist insurgents. The charge that Myanmar carried out mass rapes and killings of Rohingya communities has been brought by the Gambia, a West African state that belongs to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Now, to discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Reed Broody, a lawyer for rights organization Human Rights Watch, and is joining us on the line from Barcelona in Spain. Reed, thank you very much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Now, addressing the court earlier today, Aung San Suu Kyi said the attacks were initiated by members of the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army defending Myanmar's government against accusations of genocide. What do you make of what she said earlier today? Well, you know, we lawyers say that when the facts are against you, you argue the law. And, you know, although she did put it in a different context, she did try to say that this was a response to um, uh, attacks by by Rohingya groups. Um, basically, she didn't deny uh, that the, the the facts. She didn't deny that villages were burned, that people were expelled. Um, she she did say that um, you know, she even recognized that there were times when uh, the military may have gotten out of hand. Um, but essentially what she was trying to say uh, was, uh, look, you don't have you don't have a genocide case here. Um, ethnic cleansing is deportation. These are not genocide. And, um, you know, it was a bold move for her to come. Um, you know, usually if you're accused of doing something horrible, whether it's beating your wife or committing genocide, um, you don't call attention to it. And the entire world's media uh, is focused on this. Um, you know, she's doing it 
largely for domestic reasons, um, uh, unfortunate domestic reasons. She wants to show that she is in solidarity with the military and with the, with the main ethnic group in, in, in Myanmar. Um, but legally, I'm not sure that she's, she's, she's helping her case. Her appearance at the court came as judges are also hearing Gambia's request for provisional measures, the equivalent of a restraining order against Myanmar to protect the Rohingya population. Would a restraining order be enough to protect civilians at this point? Well, of course, a lot of the damage has been done. I mean, over 700,000 people have been deported. Um, you know, tens of thousands um, have been killed. Villages have been burned. Um, but you know what? 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 Gambia is saying is, let's better late than never. Um, things are still going on even today as we speak, um, and provisional measures, which are legally binding, um, uh, you know, can force them to, or can at least um, order them to to stop what they are doing and to um, begin to allow uh, the rights of the Rohingyas. Now, the case has been brought by the Gambia, a West African state that belongs to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Would this case change the Gambia's reputation and position uh, the country as a champion for human rights, do you think? I would think so. Um, You know, it's very refreshing. We don't often see, um, you know, small, you know, countries like Gambia or even African countries in general or even... Uh, you know, take this kind of bold initiative to protect the rights of people, you know, 7,000 kilometers away. Um, you know, usually countries leave it to the big powers. And I think it's refreshing to see this kind of international solidarity, um, you know, and um, I, I, I think people around, I mean, I saw pictures of uh, people in in Rohingya refugee camps, um, videos of them chanting, Gambia, Gambia. Um, You know, countries like when Senegal agreed to host the trial of Hissen Habre, um, when, you know, when when South Africa has stood up, uh, you know, for rights of minorities, not as often as it, it, you know, as it could, um, you know, these are things that tend to burnish a country's, a country's international reputation. And when it comes to the prosecution of genocide, the most difficult and crucial point is proving the accused party's intent to destroy wholly or partially the targeted group. Does the direct evidence of genocidal intent exist at this point? Well, you're absolutely right. It's the most difficult thing. Um, uh, you have to, in fact, I mean, there, there is very rarely direct evidence of genocidal intent. There's very rarely a piece of paper that says, let's go kill all the Rohingyas. But what a UN fact-finding team found was that the, that the laundry list of things that you would do if, um, you know, if you wanted to destroy an ethnic group um, were all present in this case. Um, the demonization of the Rohingyas, a a coordinated plan um, to push them out of where they were, um, the denial of uh, specific rights, um, the right in many cases to marry or to move, um, that, you know, these are all, these are all evidence of 
uh, genocidal intent. And the um, the UN, as I said, the UN fact-finding mission found uh, these things. Now, it's it, in fact, the bar is very, very high when you're trying to prove the intent, and you have to look at all of these factors and infer uh, such an intent. And when is the judgment expected to be handed down, Reid? Well, this is a this is an accelerated procedure. So, um, you know, usually cases at the ICJ take years, but because this is provisional measure with with human lives at stake. Um, uh, in the case of when Bosnia Herzegovina brought the former Yugoslavia uh, to the court uh, to indicate provisional measures to stop a genocide, the court ordered, I think it was within 19 days. So we could see uh, a resolution fairly soon. All right, Reid, thank you very much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Take care. And that was Reed Broody, a lawyer for Human Rights Watch, on the line from Barcelona in Spain. A very big thank you to him for joining us yet again. The time is now 17.25 Central African time. This is still Africa Digest with myself, Samora Magesi. We'll be right back. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. South Africa's Environmental Minister, Barbara Creasy, has reaffirmed the country's commitment to enhance its climate change plans by 2020 in line with the Paris Agreement. In September, President Cyril Ramaphosa committed to the United Nations General Assembly that the country will reevaluate the carbon reduction targets. Creasy says that this will happen after a consultative process with all stakeholders. South Africa's commitments include reducing carbon emissions by 42% by the year 2025. Norma Bolani reports from Madrid. South Africa's statement lacked detail on the progress being made on climate action in the country. Instead, the Environment Minister, Barbara Creasy, focused yet again on Africa's position at these negotiations, calling for shared equity and support in addressing the climate crisis. This includes reaching agreement on the financial support to enable developing countries to communicate more ambitious adaptation and mitigation contributions. On carbon reduction targets, the minister explained consultations needed to happen for the mission to be accomplished. South African environmentalists attending COP say the country's statement wasn't impressive at all. Rather, it was a rehash of an already existing commitment. Happy Kambule is a senior political advisor at Greenpeace. 
What we're looking for, at least from 2020 onwards, is that we will stop any and all fossil fuel development, particularly coal development in South Africa, due to the fact that at this point in time we can see the shortcomings, and largely one of them is climate change related. Um, we are also looking to see that a just transition process has been developed and a plan is put into the National Determined Contribution, which we're going to forward in 2020. Meanwhile, the, the president of COP25 says that the climate emergency can't only be tackled at a political level. National commitments are necessary, yes, but they're not sufficient. Meanwhile, the president of COP25, Caroline Schmidt, says the climate emergency can't only be tackled at a political level. We have to bring on board everyone. We need all of you. A change of course, taking us from negotiation to action, mainstreaming climate action into all productive sectors, making them part of the solution. Minister Creasy is facilitating the deadlock talks on the mechanisms that should see the developed countries supporting climate action in the global south. French Minister of Ecological Transition Elizabeth Bourne has called out her counterparts in the West, saying she rejects that there's a hold-up in finalising Article 6 because this means that ambitions and actions are also on hold. I'm Noma Bolani in Madrid, Spain. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here's Sholani Tulu. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, protesters have marched through the Algerian capital, Algiers, to demand that Thursday's presidential election be cancelled. Immigration authorities in Liberia have announced they are expecting 35 Liberian women who were deported from the U.S. to arrive in the country later in the day. And finally, Egypt, Eritrea and Cameroon are among the worst nations in the world for jailing journalists. This is according to the Press Freedom Group, the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tula. Zimbabwean youths operating under a registered company, Oil Castor, have launched an innovative initiative to produce biodiesel for the troubled country. The southern African nation is facing serious economic challenges that have seen the rise of fuel shortages characterized by long queues. In a bid to ease the fuel woes, Oil Castor announced in the capital on Tuesday that Oil Castor biodiesel was the answer to the country's demise. This oil has been identified as a cure to several ailments, hence the push for the country to adopt the multi-purpose plant. Simon Muchemwa reports. 
Castor bean has been used for many years as an industrial oil seed crop because of its high seed oil content. The plant grows under varying moisture and soil conditions, hence the idea by Zimbabwean youths to come up with biodiesel initiatives from the seed in Zimbabwe. This was revealed in the capital Harare on Tuesday, and if all goes according to plan, this could ease the country's fuel problems. Zimbabwe has been facing serious fuel challenges from end of 2017, and that has been growing over the past few months. In a bid to cure the fuel crisis, Oilcaster, an entity owned by Zimbabwean youths, have announced extraction of biodiesel from the caster seed would start soon to ease the shortage. Oilcaster, head of chemistry Takuz Wachifamba, explained how the biodiesel is likely going to succeed. Right now, we have the formula to produce the biodiesel. We are not yet producing that much biodiesel, but we've produced enough biodiesel for us to test on our uh, mill. It's a diesel engine uh, powered mill. We've tested it, it runs and it has no issues. But however, we we'll call you once, we, we, we are planning to set two diesel engines. Uh, one who would run with the fossil diesel and the other who would run with our biodiesel. Then we'll call you uh, next, most probably in the near future. Then we say, run these two engines. You compare uh, the performance of the two engines. But however, for the tests, in the laboratory, this our biodiesel is uh, surpassing the expected standards of the biodiesel that is expected. While the production of the seed could appear a bit easy considering all it requires is organic manure, the extraction of the oil from the seed is a bit expensive as the oil comes with some impurities. Considering the country is also facing serious electricity shortages, Takuzwa said the project would rely on solar energy. Well, uh, during uh, the crashing stage, during the processing of uh, the, uh, the caster seed, up till we get to the final product, the biodiesel, there are various stages involved, the crashing stage and uh, the oil extraction stage. So when you, when you extract the oil, in its pure form, yes, it contains that, that toxic, it's called ricin. Yeah, that's toxic. If you handle the oil without uh, doing further processing to that oil, yes, it's toxic. But you can remove that toxic substance through heat treatment. So right now we are treating our oil through heat treatment, we are boiling the oil. We are looking into other methods that we can, yeah, we, we, we can employ. You are asking if we are going to use uh, an energy intensive process for the production of the biodiesel. We are looking into other methods so that we can produce, uh, we can provide the energy. We will we'll employ maybe solar to provide um, the heat needed for the heat treatment. It doesn't take much energy, it requires less time just to eliminate um, the rising. Um, during the conversion of uh, the oil to the, um, the biodiesel, the viscosity of the oil doesn't uh, contribute to, 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 to anything to, to the process because it's a mere conversion of uh, the triglycerides in the oil to what? To the biodiesel and the waste product. Poshia Maposa, the agro-head of all castor, appealed for Zimbabwean farmers to embrace castor bean production locally. This beautiful oil reduces carbon dioxide. This beautiful oil will not have you change your oil, uh, your motor oil often. Once a year, that's all you need to maintain your car. Air filters. These are costs that we don't even have to incur because we don't even make most of them, most of them in Zimbabwe. So let's stop importing things that we don't, we don't need, and start buying local things that we can sustain ourselves with. We can be great again. 
We can stop mining and grow castor beans easily and really, really be self-efficient. We can intercrop alongside with castor beans because they increase our yields and stop putting chemicals that are not needed in our food so that I don't have to die with cancer, your mother doesn't have to die with cancer, your children don't have to die with cancer. During the launch of the initiative in Harare, Porsche revealed the Zimbabwean government was yet to license the production of the biodiesel despite reports of success in other countries. This did not come as a shock as several other locals tried addressing the fuel shortages in the country in the past through Jatrofa, a move that never was finalized. I can only be an Oprah in my own country. When my people are rich, I feel rich. When my people are healthy, I feel healthy. It's very scary to be out there as a black person. There's no other pride you can get than having your own country. But it's been sad that our country is mismanaged, right? And unfortunately, with mismanaging, results to people being mistreated. Our people are being mistreated outside this country. Yes, we might be mistreated home, but it's worse over there. When you go to Canada or North America, you're black, you go to jail. Your rights are to go to jail. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. South Africa's Department of Women, Youth and Persons with Disability, UN Women and First for Women Insurance have officially launched the 365 Days of Activism for No Violence Against Women and Children under the theme Enough is Enough, 365 Days to End Gender-Based Violence. The objective of the launch, which took place last night, was to officially extend the 16 Days of Activism for No Violence Against Women and Children campaign to a year-round campaign towards ending GBVF as well as to mobilize South Africans to play their part in ending GBVF and to pay tribute to the victims who have lost uh, people and who have lost loved ones through GBVF. More from Shoki Chabalala, Acting Director General of South Africa's Department of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities. Indeed, yesterday we marked the end of the annual 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, uh, which almost runs from the 25th to the 10th of December. But we then felt that it is about time that we revive a resolution or an action plan that was launched by Madam Pumzilem Lambunuga of 365 days, that we should not turn our backs to millions of women who are still subjected to various forms of violence, um, not only women but children, we know the experiences that they've been subjected to, 
We know that they live with trauma. Some of them is irreversible trauma, but also to ensure that we pump up resources from a preventative angle in changing norms and attitudes and continue to work from our offices, through our churches, through various sectors of civil society, labor organizations, because there's also violence in the workplace, and make sure that in the end there is a sustained campaign that doesn't just start on the 25th and end on the 10th, but throughout the year there are activities that seek to promote and protect the rights of women and girl children. We've seen that during uh, the, the 16 days of activism, um, of violence, uh, ending violence against women and children, there were a number of violent deaths against young women who lost their lives. And uh, the theme is enough is enough. Talk us through that enough is enough theme. The theme is expressing the level of anger and shame that we have as a country, and we are challenging men to come on board because this is not a woman's problem, this is a man's problem, but it's also a societal problem that requires collective response to it. Therefore, whatever we are doing seeks to galvanize, support, and harness response from all the critical stakeholders in our private space, in our public space, schools, all the areas where we know we are subjected to violence. There's no space where we feel safe as women. In your own home, you feel unsafe. You go to church, you feel unsafe. You go to the malls, you feel unsafe. Where will we find space as women where we can comfortably say we are free and we feel safe in our own space or country? So therefore, we are challenging dominant norms of masculinity, Issues of sexual entitlement from men, women are brutally raped, women are brutally murdered. It cannot be that we will continue to live like this when we have a constitution that is so good in promoting and protecting our rights as enshrined in the constitution. Women's rights are human rights too, and our lives matter. There is nothing that justifies the killing of women. No matter how wrong in your view you think that woman is, no justification can be given for raping or killing a woman. It just cannot be acceptable. How will you mobilize South Africans to play their part in ending GBVF? We have launched and unveiled a few key messages that will be rolled out throughout the 365 days. And these are messages that have been jointly crafted with the civil society organizations. We have developed a pledge for men that we will be sharing with most retailers. When men walk in, men should be able to read and be able to even sign and pledge that they will refrain from such conduct if that's what they are doing at that point in time. And if we have good men, we would like good men to reach out and engage other men and reach out to boys in particular so that we begin to have dialogues amongst ourselves and men and live in coexistence. Not this kind of life that we see where when a man sees a woman, it's, it's an object to be attacked. It, it just cannot be allowed to continue to happen in this manner. We will be reaching out through various communication platforms. We have a 365 communication strategy that has been developed, which we will share with all our critical stakeholders so that we continue to use every space, social media, to reach out and engage with all members of civil society.
There's been talk about uh, how we need to start attacking um, these issues from an early age where young boys are taught from home and in schools from an early age how to treat young girls and they grow into that as to protecting young girls, protecting their sisters and themselves as young boys so that they can grow to be better men to always want to protect women. Do you think this would work in terms of what we're seeing currently in South Africa and the scourge of the violence against women, children? It's becoming worse by the day. Let's acknowledge that we move from a premise that says there are programs in place, similar programs, but we need to upscale those programs. And as I said earlier on, take them to the churches. We have kids who attend Sunday school. Both boys and girls are there. Let's train those Sunday school teachers to understand these gender issues, to engage these kids there. Let's reach out to these boys. We've got scouting movements. We can take them out to camps and all of that. We are encouraging everyone to do so and make sure that we socialize them differently because some of them, they've been socialized that way from their homes, believing that it is right to have the boy child regarding himself as superior over the girl child, allocation of household duties and all of that. And we are gradually turning the tide where we are engaging even mothers to say there is no way we can bring culture to this practice. There's no space for culture in terms of abuse. But it's how we've been socialized and re-socializing ourselves is the best thing that we can do. And if a child has been exposed to any form of violence in their household, we can assist that child and make sure that that child understands that this is behavior that has been learned and it can be unlearned. And a psychologist must come on board. If it has gone to a point where they need psychiatric interventions, we need to do so. Support groups must be there. Parenting skills are also critical. The national strategic plan that we have crafted that will be soon approved by cabinet has got all the pillars, six pillars that is addressing to address the scourge of gender-based violence. That was Shoki Chabalala, Acting Director General of South Africa's Department of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities, on the line talking to Lulu Gabu. Right now, let's get an update from Tracy Boomgaard with regards to the economics news. Thank you, Samora. South Africa's cash-strapped power utility Eskom has dismissed claims by Gupta-linked advisory firm Trillion that the power utility had benefited massively from the work they did. The two parties are locked in a protracted legal battle over the disputed payment of almost $41 million. Jadiso Matlwani reports. In March 2018, ESCOM launched the application to review and set aside a series of its own unlawful decisions that resulted in payments of nearly 2 billion rand to Mackenzie and Trillian Management Consulting. The High Court heard that the payments to Trillian had no unlawful basis and they have all the hallmarks of fraud and corruption. However, Trillian is not backing down without a fight, arguing that the amount received from ESCOM were for the work done and services rendered. In papers before the SCA, ESCOM contends that Trillian is now in breach of the latest High Court order as it has failed to pay a single cent into the trust account. The money would have been kept in the trust pending the finalization of the appeal.
Figures released by Statistics South Africa indicate that the annual consumer price inflation rate decreased by 3.6% in November from 3.7% in October 2019. Chief Economist at Ned Bank, Dennis Dykes, says while the drop in the inflation rate provides enough incentive for the Reserve Bank to cut rates in January, a rate cut at this point is highly unlikely. I think there's a window of opportunity in the January meeting that the NBC may take the decision to actually give some relief as far as interest rates are concerned. The only difficulty there is that it's just ahead of national budget and then just after national budget you've got the sovereign rating agencies will be meeting once again. So they might feel a bit nervous cutting interest rates ahead of that. Rwanda has scrapped a tax on sanitary pads to make them more affordable. This is according to the country's gender ministry. Previously, an 18% value-added tax was placed on the pads. Consumers are yet to see if the move will reduce the price of sanitary pads in the shops. Activists say that this cost has made them out of reach for some, which has had a big impact on their lives. British company Tullow Oil may put Kenya's oil wealth dreams in jeopardy after it downgraded its production outlook and the loss of its chief executive and exploration director. Shares in the company fell 72%. On Tuesday, it said it was open to receiving offers to be bought. This year, Tullow Oil had technical difficulties in Ghana. Projects in Uganda and Kenya faced delays and results from its wells in Guyana have been below expectations. The firm also slashed its capital expenditure and cut costs at its operating fields. Halabonwe Setsabi, Minister of Trade and Industry of Lesotho, says the opportunities for industrial policy in Lesotho is endless. This was shared at the first day of the Global Manufacturing and Industrialization Summit, which took place in Pretoria, South Africa. Setsabi elaborates. In Lesotho, we have a kind of a very enabling environment. We have competitive labor and we have tried by all means to ease our taxes for manufacturing sector. We, we, we have 125% rebates for training people on site. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.34 Nigerian Naira, 10.68 Botswana Pula, at 100.55 Kenyan Shilling and at 15.41 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.14 Brazilian Hale, 63.52 Russian Ruble, 70.77 Indian Rupee, 7.03 Chinese Wang, and at 14.73 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,456 and platinum at $918 per ounce, while Brent crude oil is at $64.10 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now it's time for your latest sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. 
Starting off with football news. Tottenham Hotspur coach Jose Mourinho says he has not allowed his team to watch a single frame of their 7-2 defeat to Bayern Munich ahead of their next match against the Bavarians tonight. Speaking to reporters in Munich ahead of the Champions League group stage match, Mourinho said he is focusing on Tottenham's own performance rather than dwelling on Bayern. I watch it a couple of times. Me, my staff, the analysts, we try to go through through every detail of that match, but not one single image for the, for the boys. No, not at all. We are going to focus more on us than on, um, than on Bayern. We are going to try to develop our model of, um, of play, of course, with different bodies, with different faces, with different players. But that's, there is a certain way that we, we try to play football and to try to develop our our principles of, of play and we are totally focused on us and less on, uh, on Bayern. That's, that's the way we are going to approach. Although both teams have already qualified for the knockout stage, Mourinho said Wednesday's match was still important and a chance for some of the younger players to show him what they can do. The best will be there waiting for us. It's going to be difficult for us. I think it's going to be difficult for them. When you reach quarterfinal and everything is in the same basket, the teams, the teams from the same country, the possibility of a draw at home and away, I think is the moment where uh, everybody has the same chances. So I think our, our big, 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 big step will be the, the first knockout. Mourinho said he will rest some of his best players, including top goalscorer Harry Kane. On to rugby news. The Springbok trio of Peter Steve Dutoy, Herschel Yankees and Dylan Leitz walked away with the top accolades at the Western Province Rugby Union Awards evening held at the Calvin Kane Grove in Cape Town on Tuesday. While the Rugby Player of the Year, Dutoy was named Forward of the Year, while Scrum Half Yankees claimed the Back of the Year and the coveted Players Player of the Year, with Leitz named Most Valuable Player. All three players have Featured prominently for the Stormers this year, with Dutoy going on to be recognized as the best player in the world and Yankees nominated as World Rugby Breakthrough Player of the Year, having made a huge impression in his first season after making both his DHL Stormers and Springbok debut in 2019. On to cricket news. Pakistan's first test match on home soil since 2009, which started against Sri Lanka in Rawalpindi today, is very good for the Pakistani nation, says Pakistan captain Azar Ali. We're all excited to play playing home series, um, which will be very good for Pakistan nation. Hopefully, we can build on it and uh, the, the grounds of Pakistan will be back on. Uh, everyone will watch the international cricket uh, in their own cities. Pakistan hosts Sri Lanka in a two-match series, their first test on home soil since the 2009 militant attack on Sri Lanka's team bus in Lahore, which left six security personnel and two civilians dead and six players injured. Uh, Sri Lankan team, first of all, uh, they always uh, play disciplined cricket, and um, if you have to beat uh, Sri Lanka anywhere, home or away, you have to play disciplined cricket yourself and um, you know play 
um, according uh, to the demands of test cricket, they won't let you off at any stage. So I think Sri Lankan team is always uh, a big challenge, and uh, we, we we are all we know the strengths of Sri Lanka, and also um, yes, we have been uh, haven't been playing uh, good cricket recently, but uh, we are confident that we can. We have the ability to change things around and especially playing at home um, gives us the advantage. This is Channel Africa and I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, or you can tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Indo Ingawe by Sano Musician featuring Amifaku.